0: Thursday, or Monday, Thursday, foot washing and communion service, and then Good Friday night. Uh, Boy, what meaningful times of worship those were. Uh, Just so rich. Uh, I know that that those of you that were here, and many were here, uh, know what it is to celebrate those and then to come to this day. And I just thank everyone who who was a part of that. Um, And then yesterday, our children's, all about Easter, we had over 100, like 130, 140 kids that came. Just incredible here as families came, and it was just a beautiful day uh, to celebrate, and uh, a great weekend. We got a little bit of press for the Thursday night service as the Salt Lake Tribune was doing a story on foot washing, and uh, the reason they came to this church and took pictures is because we are known to have the most beautiful feet in the valley, and... um, (laughs) Uh, they, they put the pastor on the front page. I asked them to get my good side. They called back 10 minutes later. They say we don't have a good side on you. You don't have a good side. We're just going to run this picture. And, uh, but wasn't that a great picture? Chuck Graybill has some beautiful hands. Jim White has some beautiful feet. How they knew it was you guys, I don't know. But, but that's a picture to frame. The raising of Lazarus is really the lower resurrection story in the gospel of John. It's not the top resurrection story. We know which one that is. It's in chapter 20, the resurrection, of course, of Jesus. But we have been going through the I am statements of Jesus, the seven I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel over these past Sundays of Lent leading up to resurrection Easter Sunday. And so I wanted to conclude that series with Jesus. uh, I am statement his stunning claim. I am the resurrection and the life In John chapter 11, Jesus comes face to face with death's greatest prize and trophy, the gravesite. Those who have read Luke's gospel, you already know. You've heard about Mary and Martha, those two sisters. But now we learn they have a brother whose name is Lazarus. And Lazarus is sick. And the sisters send for Jesus. And the message to him is, the one you love is sick. Right away, we learn something about the relationship between Jesus and Lazarus. There's a relationship of love. Uh, They are good friends. They are close friends. And we know that Jesus would go to these siblings' house. He spent time with them. He ate with them. Probably very good friends. Jesus makes a startling claim when he hears that his friend is sick. He says, it will not end in death, but it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified. And you know, that's the whole purpose of that event, the raising of Lazarus in John 11, so that God may be glorified, particularly that Jesus, God's son, would be glorified. It's not about Lazarus, it's about God's glory. Now, of course, we know Lazarus does die. Was Jesus wrong? He said this wouldn't end in death. Well, not if Jesus meant that the sickness will merely pass through death, but it will not end in death there ultimately and pay attention to what jesus said god's son will be glorified through it that little word it through it that it means lazarus sickness what looks bad and dark can often be turned into god's glory those it's in our lives we're again told Jesus loved Mary, Martha and Lazarus, but instead of going to them in their time of need, he stays where he is for two days. Jesus delays. Furthermore, we're told that where he is in Jerusalem, it's only it's less than two miles from Bethany. It wouldn't be a big deal to walk there in a short amount of time. Jesus doesn't come close enough and he doesn't come quick enough. Jesus, what gives? Why do you wait? We can often feel that way about Jesus, can't we? In our distress, in our hard circumstances, he seems to just take his own sweet time. Sometimes we think he probably doesn't show up at all. Well, what's the lesson in this event with Lazarus? I think Dale Bruner reminds us, and I think he reminds us very helpfully, that what looks immediately hurtful will turn out to have been ultimately the greatest help of all. We're going to see that. And that the revelation of Jesus' power over even death, the ultimate enemy. I think of that old black spiritual, the gospel tune, God may not be in a hurry, but he's always right on time. And we're going to see that. When Jesus finally does make his way to Bethany, Martha goes out to meet him, but we're told Mary, The other sister stays right where she is. She does not go out to meet Jesus. Is Mary offended? Is Mary hurt and hacked off that Jesus did not come when her brother died? Mary's kind of like that person who doesn't come to church. She stays at home because coming to church, he's angry at the Lord for his perceived absence in their lives. And so... They just say, forget it. He wasn't there. He didn't come when I needed him. I don't need him. Can I just point out that Jesus never chastises Mary? He never does anything with this. Mary has permission to be hurt from Jesus because he knows this is going to end for the glory of God. And, you know, God is deeply patient with us, especially when we're angry with him. In fact, I think he understands, like a parent, understands that her pouting child doesn't understand everything yet. It says in Psalm 103, God has compassion for his children. For us, like a father, has compassion for his children. My grandmother was an identical twin to her sister, and they were close. They lived with their spouses on two sides of a family cabin in the later years of their life. Uh, Just kind of split the house, and, and they lived there, and they... I would say they were closer to one another, these twin sisters, than they were maybe to their own spouses. They loved one another. They were tight. Talked just all day long, every day. Loved one another deeply. And I remember when my great aunt was tragically killed in an auto accident. The day before they would celebrate another birthday. While she was on the way to a granddaughter's baby shower. I remember how angry my grandmother became. She wasn't an angry woman, but she was angry now. She was a woman of faith. She had been to churches all her life. Wherever she moved, she was always at a church, but for one whole year, she did not show up in a church. God hadn't been there. Where was he? She was hurt. A year later, after... My grandmother's twin sister was killed. I happened to be in Colorado. I was working there, and that's where my aunt and uncle lived. And and they brought my grandmother at that time, at the one-year mark of that tragic event, to Colorado. So we were all together. It was good she wasn't in California, where she would be remembering this event very painfully. As As was our custom, we decided to go to church that Sunday, not knowing if our grandmother would go, my grandmother would go we said we were going and she just very quietly said i'm going too and i will never forget the tears that she just shed as we stood and we sang that first song she just bawled it was it, it was like the pain and the hurt and the anger were just letting loose and you know from that moment she was okay Scarred, still carrying hurt? Yes, but she was okay. Maybe she figured out that Jesus could do something with this, that he is the resurrection and the life. Maybe she came to rest in her sister, having moved through and beyond death into everlasting life with Jesus. Aunt Gert was a believer. I mean, she was Baptist, so, you know, obviously with the Lord. Heaven's full of Baptists, I understand, And uh, my grandmother has since long gone to be with the Lord herself now. I wonder what she would say about it all now, now that she has moved through into glory. I'm convicted that she sees a larger, fuller glory of God now in that incident and in every other painful incident that hit her life, and that she sees Jesus' power in a way that yet we cannot Martha says to Jesus, if she believes, Martha says to Jesus that she believes if he had been here, her brother would not have died. She still believes something can be done. And Jesus tells her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answers, I know that he will rise again at the end of the age. You see, Martha was a first century Jew who knew her synagogue lessons. And first century Jews believed that a day would come when. Resurrection for them meant that a day would come when God would raise all those who have died, who are now in this intermediate state, and he would give them new bodies, in essence recreating them. They didn't mean by resurrection going to be with God or life after death. Ezekiel 37, the vision of the valley of bones and God's spirit coming and reviving those valley of bones into human beings was the scriptural foundation for the Jewish belief. And in that passage, one of the things God says is this. I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. Jews in Jesus' day believed that God would restore Israel, that this would include new bodies for formerly dead human beings. It would come with a new age, a new covenant with God, when all the righteous dead would be raised simultaneously, all at once, in one grand resurrection, at the end time. Mary believed this. That is when Jesus speaks one of his strongest statements that ever came from his mouth. I am the resurrection and the life. and The one who believes in me will live, even though that person dies. And all who live and believe in me will never die. Jesus doesn't point her to doctrine. He doesn't even point her to the scriptures. He says, I. I'm the resurrection and the life. Our faith is not about a moral system. It's not even about a theological system. It's about a person, the son of God. Many people have fine morals. Many people have well-thought-out systems of belief, whatever they may be, but they miss the person of Jesus Christ. Christian faith is about a personal God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to believe Jesus, not just doctrines. We have to deal with him because in the end, it is not going to be so much a place that we face as it will be the risen Lord who we meet at the end. By saying, I am the resurrection, Jesus is saying, I am the power, I'm the glory, I am the hope and the door for resurrection to happen. Resurrection is embodied in him And this resurrection is a victory over death in the present. While the most stunning part is still to come, it's not totally in some distant future. The Lord says, you don't have to wait till the end. Something has and is happening now in terms of resurrection and life. And it is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus acknowledged that all those who believe in him, they're going to die. Physical death comes to everybody. But those who live now and continue to believe in Jesus will never die. That is to say, as it reads in the original Greek wording, will never die in the age to come. Will never die in the next life. Will never die in respect to the next world. That's what he means. And then Jesus asks Martha, Do you believe this? Whenever I hear those words of Jesus on the resurrection and the life, these words often get left out. When we hear them. Do we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? John says the whole reason he writes his 21 chapters of his gospel is for one thing alone, that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. And Paul says that resurrection, belief in the resurrection is essential for saving faith. Paul writes in Romans, because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, belief doesn't mean total understanding. It doesn't mean you have no questions. Matthew writes how the disciples saw the risen Lord. They talked with him. They spoke with him. He was right then. He says they still had doubts. They still wrestled with things. There's a lot about resurrection that's hard to believe that we can't get to or see now. But, you know, Jesus never requires perfect or complete faith. No, he doesn't. He'll take faith, the grain of a mustard seed, Martha acknowledges what she does believe, even though she's still struggling in a challenging situation. Yes, we have unbelief, but what do we believe? What can I say? I can put my feet on this because belief is a choice as much as as it is many other things. It's a choice. Well, Jesus now turns back to Mary and he calls for her. A significant number of verses is given to Mary and Jesus and how they relate to one another, especially since Mary has been affected in this relationship by Jesus' delay. And Jesus sees Mary crying along with all the other friends who have come to comfort her. And he is deeply moved. It's a very strong word to describe what Jesus felt. Gary Wills translates it, he convulsed. Jesus physically shook with cries. He can't hold it together. There's no denial of pain here death hurts, it steals, it takes, and God feels it. And when Jesus arrives at the tomb of Lazarus, he again, it says, convulses in emotion. He orders the stone that seals the tomb to be taken away. But Martha has a problem with this. Lazarus has been in that tomb for four days, and surely the body is decaying, and the body is smelling, and it must be horrific. The King James reads like this. He stinketh. Don't you love that? He stinketh. Martha doesn't want to deal with stinks in order to get to the glory of God. Is there something in your life right now that stinketh? And maybe you've been ignoring it or you've just buried it in some tomb. You've rolled a stone in front of it in hopes that you just won't have to deal with it. Sometimes we can't separate what stinks from what leads to the glory of God. Sometimes we have to go through the stench to find God's glory. Remember, that's what Jesus said this whole thing was going to be about. Doesn't mean there aren't hurt feelings, doesn't mean there are not tears and deep grief, doesn't mean there isn't a bad smell. But Jesus says you will see the glory of God. And then in one of the few times we actually hear Jesus pray out loud, he does that, and he says he does it so that those who hear him, only for one reason, so that those who hear him will believe. The question won't go away. Do you believe? And Jesus calls out in a loud voice voice, which is really a weak translation. Cross it out in your Bible. It says he shouted with a mega voice. He roared. After all, he's calling to a dead man. If you want a dead man to hear you, you've got to talk awful loud. And he shouts, Lazarus, come out. He speaks Lazarus name. Remember Jesus, the good shepherd. I call my sheep by their name. Jesus said before this, back in John five, we're told a time is coming. When all who are in their graves will hear my voice, will hear his voice and come out. Lazarus comes out. Jesus orders them to take off Lazarus grave clothes and literally it means unwrap him and let him go. Unwrap him. If you believe and you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the tomb is not your home. Death does not own you, nor control you, nor reign in you. You are not dead, but you are alive. Maybe you can't see it right now, but we do not look at what is seen. We look to what is unseen. Whenever we choose to live in dark thoughts or dark moods or self-pity or resentment or participate in whatever is against God's reign and God's light, we just entomb ourselves. We bury ourselves. If Jesus calls you out of the tomb, then you come out because you don't belong there. And those of us who have come out of our tombs and come to know life in Christ, we need the unwrapping of all the things that have bound and held us for so long. I am still being unwrapped. There are fears, there are struggles, there are doubts, there are impulses that can still hold us. And just like Lazarus, we need others. We need friends to help unwrap us. We need, we need pastors, and we need teachers, and we need encouragers, and we need friends, and we need spiritual directors and mentors who will help unwrap us. Unwrapping can take time. It can take a lifetime, most of our life. But if we place our trust in Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, we rely on what he has done, not on what we have to do. The decisive event has happened, and it may seem slow at times, but life is coming. May the wrappings just come off of us, little by little. Well, here's the thing. I want to close with this. This is really the point. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he died again. Oh, great. You took us all the way here to, get to just tell us that? Lazarus did not deal with the problem of death. This event was just a preview. It was an appetizer. It was a foreshadowing of something greater still to come. And from here on out, John doesn't even hardly tell us about Lazarus. He's not significant. That's because the event is really about Jesus. I, I myself, I'm the resurrection and the life, and death will not be ultimate for you in the life to come if you believe that I am this. This event points us to Jesus' ultimate victory over death. It is also the last sign that John records that Jesus does in his gospel until the cross and the resurrection. It is Jesus whom this is about, who, must, who we must come to terms with, who was crucified, killed, and buried in a tomb, and on Sunday was seen, alive, touched, and heard by many, who broke out of death in the tomb to cement his claim as the resurrection and the life. And the Lord's Supper is an exclamation point to that. How good that we're doing that today. We need to see this table more from a resurrection point of view than we often do. This is not a funeral meal. This is not a table of mourning. I don't see any funeral potatoes on this table. This is a table of joy. This is an anticipation of the marriage feast, of the Lamb. That is to come. That we will someday all share in. Jesus said if anyone. Eats my body the bread. If anyone drinks my blood. They have eternal life. I will raise them up. He said I will raise them up. At the last day. This table tells us. You're not dead. You are alive. And you are to proclaim the works of the Lord. Your death is put to death. You are in fact already dead. The terror that death gives has already been dealt with for you. This table is a table of prevailing, of strengthening our faith and our joy and our belief. So let's not nurse our sinfulness here. Let's not nurse our sadness here. We're called to a very different situation. In Romans, Paul writes this. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And those who believe have already begun here and now to live the complete life that he is giving to us. Do you believe it? Amen.